where we started last week and we continue in chapter 1 this week. Uh, one announcement, Thursday night is the grand opening of our cafe, so we invite you to come before or after the service. It will not be uh, open during the service, but it will be open afterwards, so we invite you to come and check it out. Today we're in Ruth, beginning with verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, this is Naomi, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, for they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, lifted up their voices, and wept. They said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight, and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, or to go back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried The Lord do to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she had determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. I brought with me this morning a copy of my wedding invitation from 1981. It's got our mugshot on the front of the invitation, and it has the scripture portion of Ruth 116 etched on it. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. That's a common scripture that is put on many a wedding invitation, I have noticed. But we need to know, especially from reading this this morning, that that statement was not given by a husband to a wife, or a wife to a husband, or a fiancé to another fiancé. This was originally spoken to a mother-in-law. Now that's commitment. (laughs) That is commitment. It was spoken by young Ruth, whose husband had died, and she owed nothing to this woman. But she made the commitment, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It is so different from how many have a relationship with their mother's-in-law. 
One guy took his dog to the vet to have the tail trimmed. The vet said, it's not a healthy thing to do to this dog, and it's not going to look very good once you do it. Why on earth would you have the tail cut off your dog? He said, well, my mother-in-law is coming to visit, and I want to eliminate any possible signs of welcome. Don't try that, guys. The scene that we have in these verses is a very simple scene. It is a domestic scene. It is a scene of three widows. In fact, I've called this a tale of three widows. We have Naomi from Bethlehem in the land of Moab. We have her two daughters-in-law after the death of her sons. Orpah, not Oprah, as my friend would like to pronounce it, but Orpah and Ruth. If you were riding on a donkey and you could see this scene from afar, a simple scene of three gals weeping and talking, you'd probably think, not a big deal, not very important, certainly not an important conversation. What is the big deal about this narrative? I had a guy come to me this week, in fact, he said, why Ruth? Why would you study Ruth on Sunday morning?" And I said, why Acts? Why Psalms? Why any book of the Bible? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And it showed me insight into how many people view certain books of the Bible. The book of Ruth has one of the clearest examples and previews of redemptive grace and redemptive love than any book in the Bible. And it will become clear as we go on. The moment that we're reading about here, this conversation, is one of the most decisive conversations, I think, in history. What they are deciding upon and talking about is so significant and will change not only the life of Ruth and Naomi, but thousands of lives afterwards. If you lived during that era and you had the capability of traveling around the world to see what is happening as this conversation is taking place or during that era of this conversation, there were other significant things happening. The Grecian age was coming of age. The Dorians had conquered it. They were settling into it. A new dynasty in China, the Zhou dynasty, with all of its intellectual achievements, was on the horizon. The Mayan dynasties in South and Central America were starting to form. Great empires were forming. And if you were to compare all of those things with this little conversation in Moab, you'd say, those are important things, but this is not all that important. But I would contend by saying that their conversation is more important than all of those events. You say, how do you figure that? By this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why was he born there? Because it was called the city of David. That's his ancestor. Well, why was David born there? Because his dad, Jesse, was born there. Well, why was Jesse born there? Because Jesse's dad, Obed, was born there. Well, why was Obed born there? Because Obed's mom was a Moabitess named Ruth who decided to leave Moab and come to Bethlehem. And if they don't have this conversation and she doesn't get to Bethlehem, go tell the Magi to stay put. Don't bother coming because they'll end up at the wrong place. In God's providence, it's a setup for the genealogy and the birthplace of Jesus Christ. All to show us what Zechariah says, that we should not despise the days of small beginnings. We might look at an event and say, oh, that's so insignificant. 
But that might be a hinge. Though other dynasties are rising and falling, that might be a terrific hinge in history. Now we're going to look this morning at these three widows. In fact, those are our points. We're going to look at each widow individually. Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. First of all, let's look at Naomi and the choice that she made. We saw a little bit last week. This morning I'm calling Naomi a widow who is convinced. In verse 6, She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited His people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. She was convinced to return to Bethlehem. She was convinced that God was again kind to the covenant people, the Jews. And she was convinced that she could leave a land of failure and sin and get back under the blessing of God. In verse 6, she heard the famine had ended. That's what it means by the Lord had visited His people and given them bread once again. The famine of judgment was over. And she thought, I'm heading back. I'm out of here. I'm history. And she packed up her belongings, being so convinced that it was the right thing to do. And we noticed something. Her two daughters-in-law, who were not Jewish, who were not born in Bethlehem, who would have no vested interest in going to this place, pack up their things, and they start traveling along the road with her. I'm sure it is because Naomi was so convinced that it was the right thing for her to do that in the two daughters-in-law seeing her, they were convinced it's probably the right thing for us to do. So they started out together. My point is this. For you to be an effective witness, there has to be some measure of enthusiasm about your message and about your life. You have got to convince people that you are convinced yourself. Otherwise, it's just words. There's got to be that enthusiasm. And she rose up and they decided to rise up with her. I think you could be a great debater, brilliant theologian, and still be an ineffective witness. You can have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. You can say all of the right things. And as we've said before, you can be very right, but dead right There's no spark, there's no life, there's no dynamic. I think when she heard there was bread, she goes, hot diggity dog. That's a paraphrase, of course. God is in town. I'm going back. She packed up and they started as well. When Peter was approached by Andrew, Andrew knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter was not convinced yet. Peter was mending nets. When Andrew approached Peter... How did he do it? Did he uh, come up with a position paper on the importance of messianic imminence in the life of Peter? No, he came up with bated breath. He said, we have found the Messiah. I think the sound of his voice, the look in his face convinced Peter, I'm going to put these nets down and check this out. Dwight L. Moody I think one of the reasons he was so effective is that as a young man converted from a shoe store salesman, he went out to the streets of Chicago and he was so convinced himself in Jesus Christ that other kids that he invited to Sunday school were convinced. That was one of his traits and marks that was notable. It was written of Dwight L. Moody. He was like a huge bearded 
Pied Piper. And the kids just followed him into the Sunday schools and then into the arms of God. It's easy to do that when somebody's convinced. Now, in verse 6, we start getting the mention of God's name. Up to this point, the first five verses, we have no mention of God at all, simply because, so far, the first five verses is a story of a family's actions apart from God. And now we have a widow's actions in view of God. And she mentions his name a lot. In verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the country of Moab that Yahweh... Y-H-V-H, that tetragrammaton, the covenant name of God, that Yahweh had visited his people by giving them bread. In verse 8, she mentions the name of God to her daughters-in-law. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord, Yahweh, deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord, Yahweh, grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them lifted up their voices and wept. And she said, Surely we will return with you to your people. The name of God is on her lips because she's got God on her brain suddenly. She heard God is visiting Bethlehem. And now, in her language, she is using the name that was the covenant name of God. Now, I'm going to show you its significance in just a moment. But whenever God introduced himself on the basis of a covenant with his people, he would use this term, Yahweh, the Lord. When he spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he introduced himself as Yahweh. He spoke to Moses, and he said, I am that I am. This is the name I choose for myself to relate to covenant people with. Keeping that in mind, go down to verse 19. She gets to Bethlehem, and she changes her tune just a little bit. The two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. The woman said, Is this Naomi? But she said, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. The Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? She uses two terms, Yahweh, but when she speaks about God afflicting her, it's the word Shaddai, which isn't so much the name of a covenant as it is, I went out and I disobeyed and I could not withstand the all-powerful, almighty God. All of this is an admission It's as if she said, I am convinced God is good. I am convinced I made a mistake. I am convinced that I could not fight the Almighty God. I'm convinced I left the covenant of God by leaving the land. And the Almighty has withstood me. But she also mentions Yahweh. The Lord has brought me back, albeit empty. That change is revealing. She's convinced that she left... And God rebuked her for her disobedience. As she said in verse 13, the Lord has dealt in a negative way with me. There was a summer camp at which the counselor was trying to get all of the kids together and explain to them how God had a purpose for everything he created. There's purpose for the trees, the rocks, the rivers. And they would go down the list and discuss some created thing in nature. 
And all the kids could pretty well understand, yeah, there's a purpose for the trees, and there's a purpose for the rivers, and there's a purpose for the mountains and the animals. One kid in the group said, well, if God has a purpose for everything, then why did he create poison ivy? Now, the counselor was stumped at this, and he kind of gurgled and and didn't come up with a good answer. One of the other kids who was sitting next to the kid who had the question said, I can answer that. God made poison ivy because he wanted us to know that there are certain things we should keep our cotton-picking hands off of. That's why. I think that's a pretty good answer. She realizes, I touched the wrong thing. I should have kept my hands off of Moab. Though it was my husband's decision, and I love him, and I honored him, we made a mistake. And we were fighting Almighty God. And God brought us back into the land. Praise the Lord, but I have come back bitter and empty. My point is this. Suffering can be a noble thing if it leads you back to God. Don't come up with this stupid notion that all suffering is of the devil. It can be one of God's strongest tools to bring you back to a covenant relationship with Him. And she realizes, I blew it, it was dumb, God rebuked me, but He brought me back, and I'm back into this land of blessing again. David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. In other words, God used my suffering, my affliction, to spank me, to get me back. Martin Luther even said, were it not for tribulation, I would not understand Scripture. So not all pain is destructive. It's instructive. Now, the devil would use it to destroy you, but God would turn it around for his glory and for your good to bring you back to God. And now she acknowledges God even in the midst of a power encounter with him where she lost. I love the story of the woman who, after the San Francisco earthquake, walked out of her home with a huge smile on her face. And her neighbor said, why on earth would you smile at a time like this? She said, oh, I just praise the Lord that I have a God who can shake the world. That's perspective. I have a God who can shake the world. Naomi's God shook Naomi's world, but it drove her to her God. God may shake your world. Make sure it drives you to Him. You may have heard of that poor little ant that had to cross the sidewalk. Four-foot sidewalk, that's a long way for an ant. Especially with that huge burden of straw on its back. And it was carrying through that large expanse. It was going, oh, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Then he came to a crack. He looked at the crack. He thought, this is my undoing. I'll never make it. I mean, it's too hard and heavy already. I'll never get across. Oh, woe is me. Finally, a thought struck him. And he laid that burden of straw across the gap And he walked across and took the straw again. The heavy burden became a handy bridge. His troubles, that which was a burden to him, became a blessing to him. That's how Naomi views it. I'm bitter because I've disobeyed, but it brought me back to the land. That's the way to look at it. Okay, let's look at the next widow, Orpah. Again, not Oprah, Orpah. And uh, I've called Naomi a widow convinced. I'll call Orpah a widow constrained. What I mean by that is that she is so tied and bound to her own religious system and her own culture that she doesn't go back to Bethlehem. Um, Orpah, at first, walks part way with her mom-in-law and her sister-in-law, Ruth. They're walking together to Bethlehem in verse 7. 
It says that uh, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. They went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So far, so good, but it doesn't last long. Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, lifted up their voices, they wept. They said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. This is a kiss goodbye. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Question. Why did Naomi try to talk him into going back to Moab? I mean, you think, if she's a good evangelist, she's going to say, I want you to come. And do everything that she could to talk them into coming to Bethlehem. But twice she says, go back home. I'll tell you why I think. I think that it's simply a way to tell them, if you're going to come the rest of the way, you make sure you have counted the cost of this choice. And that's what this language is all about. You see, to be a widow in ancient times was a precarious position. First of all, if you were a young widow, if you lost your husband, you were still young and able to get married again easily, you would always go back to your parents' house. Because you have no one else to take care of you. Your only hope is found in the refuge of your parents' house. And then the only hope for a widow beyond that in her parents' house is that she would get married again and come under what the Hebrews called the rest. Menucha. The marital rest. The asylum of having a husband to protect her. That's what she's saying. She's going, if you're going to follow me, you know, you're in a precarious position. You're young widows. You're not in the rest of your parents' house, the asylum of your father and mother. You're going to be leaving your country. It's not going to be easy. Not only that, they would be foreigners... In Israel, Naomi knew the pride of her own people, the Jews, that they would not kindly respect Moabite women, especially women whose husband disobeyed God and went to Moab. There would be a stigma attached to that. And so she's getting them to count the cost. Jesus did that, didn't he? Jesus didn't have everybody that showed an interest sign the card. A guy came to him very zealous. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, let me tell you something. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If you're going to follow me, you're not going to stay in an inn. And if it's an inn, it's not going to be a holiday. It's going to be tough if you follow me. Then Jesus taught a parable on the cost of discipleship when he said, which of you intending to build a tower wouldn't first count the cost to make sure you have the money to finish it. Or if you're a king and you're going to go to war, you want to make sure that you have enough manpower and money to finish the job. 
Jesus, it seemed, always challenged people. Not that he didn't want them to follow him, but he wanted committed followers. And sometimes they counted the cost and they left Jesus. Did you know that? There was a time in John chapter 6 where he said, I am the bread of life, and this is the commitment that you must make to me if you follow me. And it says in that chapter, many of his disciples went back and walked with Jesus no more. Naomi knew that her words would stop those gals dead in their tracks and have them weigh out the commitment. Would they stay in Moab or would they take this pilgrim journey back to Bethlehem? What did Orpah do? Well, she realized, you know what? She's right. This is quite a commitment. Quite a risk. And I'm going to take her advice. I can't make that cost. I can't make that risk. I'm going to go back to my parents' house in Moab. Verse 15, Naomi says to Ruth, it's very insightful, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. See, there's a spiritual reality behind Orpah's decision. It's not, well, yeah, I'm just going to go back home. It's, I'm going to go back home to my gods. Now, the god of Moab was Chemosh, we told you last week. By the way, Chemosh was the god who would protect people. He was the god who would give you your necessary provisions. And I think she said, I don't know your god. You're going back to a place that was judged. I'm going to stay home with my mom and dad. And Chemosh is the one I'm going to relate to. It was the easiest choice, by far. Much easier to stay in Moab with the language and the customs and the culture and the religion than to head out as a young widow on an unknown road to an unknown place. It was the path of least resistance. That's the choice many make, isn't it? The path of least resistance. When you fly in an airplane and you look down at rivers, you notice that though no two rivers look alike, they have one thing in common, they're all crooked. You'll never find a straight river. It always bends because water seeks its own level. It looks for the path of least resistance. If there's something stronger than it, it'll just get around where it's the easiest. And that's the decision that Orpah made after Naomi said, count the cost. I don't want to be too hard on Oprah, I mean Orpah. Um, but she did make a choice to go back to idolatry, her gods, and to not walk the pilgrim road of faith to Bethlehem. She went back. Ruth goes on and follows her mother-in-law. And I think there is a spiritual analogy. I think there's a lot of people like Orpah who get up and make a feigned, short-lived commitment. Yeah, okay, I'll go. And they'll walk on the road for a period of time, and then after a while you think, well, they're not with us anymore. What happened? It wasn't a life change. That's what happened. We've heard of the prodigal son, haven't we? But have you ever heard of the prodigal pig? It's in the Bible. Did you know that? The prodigal son, oh, we know that. That's the son who left his father's estate, squandered all of his wealth, and then finally came to his senses when he was in a pig pen. He realized, I'm not a pig. I don't belong here. I belong at dad's house. And so we went back to dad's house. But there's a story of a prodigal pig. Luke talks about the prodigal son. Peter talks about the prodigal pig. He said, Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a pig that is washed will go back to her wallowing in the mud. 
You can take a pig and can the pig can get out of the pig pen for a couple days. You could wash a pig, put a little bow tie on that pig, brush its teeth, train it, but it's a pig. After a while, it's going to want to go back to what it knows best, the pig pen. Just like a prodigal son, who is not a pig, will eventually say, I don't belong here, I'm going to go back home. That's what Naomi did. She was like the prodigal son, I'm going back home. Orpah was like the pig, returning back to what was easiest, what was it was used to. She went back to her gods. You can travel for a time on God's road. You can travel for a time with God's people. You can say, oh, I'm on the road to Bethlehem. But eventually you will make a choice. The choice that Naomi made. Moab looked more attractive. Moab was much easier. I have a letter here from a woman who wrote, Would you please help me? The agony that I feel in my conscience is like an awful grinding As I reap the results of my wasted years, I accepted Jesus at an early age. But later, because I was told I was attractive and had a natural singing voice, I took a job in a nightclub. At 17, I married a man that I met there. Christian friends urged me to use my talents for Christ, but I ignored them. I now have a girl 14 years old with an incurable disease. And listen, she has never been to church. God seems so far away, and I don't know how to reach my daughter. Please help me stop the terrible grinding of remorse. The letter was signed, A Broken-Hearted Mother. That doesn't have to be your testimony. Your testimony can be, I have a changed heart. The world may look attractive, and I might think I can do this, but no, I'm going to go the way of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi is a widow convinced. Orpah is a widow constrained. Now let's look at Ruth. The story gets good here. I call her a widow converted and committed. Verse 15. After she said, Look, your sister has gone back to her people and her gods returned to your sister-in-law, Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Isn't that great? The same cost had to be counted. The same words were heard by Ruth. She thought of all the same options that Orpah did. And if you think about it, as she saw Orpah go off into the distance, it still would be easier for Ruth to follow Orpah rather than Naomi. You know why? Orpah and Ruth had a lot more in common than Ruth and Naomi. They were both Moabitess women. They both had the same language, the same religious background, the same culture, the same experience of being young and widowed, and they were just as much a part of each other's family as Ruth and Naomi. But Ruth clung to Naomi. Not only did she cling to Naomi, but what she said to Naomi... You can't find a rhetorician or poet today that can write any better than that. It reminds me of what Proverbs says, words fitly spoken are like apples of gold in settings of silver. It's been immortalized on wedding invitations and promises for generations. Let's look at the commitment in verse 16, shall we? First of all, it was a steadfast commitment. She said, entreat me not to leave you. In other words, quit trying to talk me out of it. 
I've made my choice. I'm steadfast. No more words about me staying and not going with you. It was a steadfast commitment. She wanted to stick to it. You've got to admire her guts and her perseverance. Look, I know the cost. Stop already. Charles Spurgeon used to talk about the ark and all the animals, and he'd say, By perseverance, the snail reached the ark. By perseverance, Ruth reached Bethlehem. Don't talk me out of it. I am going. It was the same commitment that Elisha made to Elijah when Elijah said, Now we're going to be separated for just a little bit, and then we'll get back together. Elisha said to him, As surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. It's the same commitment Paul made when the church tried to talk him out of going to Jerusalem. Don't go, Paul. You'll get killed. And Paul said, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not only ready to suffer, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus Christ. That's a steadfast commitment. I've got to say, we need more of that. God give us commitment in people. There's a lot of spiritual cream puffs who measure commitment in microseconds. Well, I'm committed for about that long. And then I'll look for something else and something else and something else. Jesus talked about the seed that was sown on stony soil that had no root in himself and endured only for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arose because of the word, they fell and were no more. Secondly, it was a humble commitment. She said, Naomi, where you go, I will go. In other words, you are the leader, I am the follower, you set the pace, you go the direction. And I will humble myself, and I will follow after you. That's the same commitment Jesus made to his father in the garden when he was wrestling with, should I go to the cross or should I not? And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Humble commitment. It's the same commitment a wife makes to her husband. And she says, I'm trusting God on this one. You're the head of the home. You lead, I will follow. It's also the same commitment of a disciple to a mentor. I think this is a beautiful example of a young Christian who would go to an older Christian and say, Look, I'm young in the faith. Would you disciple me? You set the pace. You set the direction. I want to know Jesus Christ, and so I'm going to watch you. There's a lot to be said for that. You know, submission is part of the Christian life. Peter wrote it this way. He said... Let the younger submit to the elders. Yes, let all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Then, thirdly, it was an unashamed commitment. She said, your people will be my people. Well, that's a big, big jump, folks. She is saying, in effect, the Moabite people, they've been my people all my life. I'm disassociating with them. And I'm going to glue myself to the Hebrew nation. Your people will be my people. Not just I'm going to follow you and make your God my God, but your people will be my people. Especially since she's about to go into a land whose people may not receive her, may reject her because she is a foreign woman who married a sinful man who died in judgment. She says, you know what? I may not fit in, but they're going to be my people too. When I first became a Christian, one of the things that hindered me, you might say, bothered me, 
I wanted to come to Jesus. I just didn't want to hang around His people. There's a lot of Christians I met that I didn't like. And I didn't want to be like. But I realized, for me to love God means I've got to love His people. And not only that, they have to love me. And that probably was the biggest miracle. But John wrote in his epistle, We know that we pass from death into life because we love the brethren. So if you're going to accept God, you're going to accept His people. You're part of the family. I hear people say, Yo, I'm going to make a commitment to Jesus, but I'm not going to church. Hello. Doesn't work that way. Let's reverse that though. Not only do you make God's people your people, but God accepts you as His people. That's the biggest miracle of all. It says in Hebrews 11, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called our God. That's a really great thing when you say, okay, I'm going to make this commitment and, and I'm going to also be part of God's people, God's body. Is that God with open arms will receive you as His own. You may be a foreigner, so to speak, but God will make you His own. The Bible calls it adoption. We are adopted as sons and daughters. There were two kids in Sunday school. First day of Sunday school, teacher said, introduce yourselves. And he, they gave their names. They looked about the same age. And uh, they said, uh, these are our names and we are brothers. Uh, I am seven years old and my brother is seven years old. I was born on April 8, 1988, and my brother here was born April 20, 1988. Teacher said, that's impossible. Kid said, it's not impossible. One of us is adopted. And the teacher, without really thinking what impact his question would have, he said, well, which one? The little boys smiled at each other, and the bolder of the two said, We asked Dad a while ago, but he just said he loved us both, and he couldn't remember anymore which was adopted. Isn't that great? I'm not going to even tell them which is adopted. I love you both. Your people will be my people, and God will say, Yeah, I'll make you my people. Fourthly, it was a spiritual commitment. She said, Your God will be my God. That's really the ultimate decision here. And that shows you that this is not just a human decision to love another human being. It's not just, oh, Naomi, I just think you're the greatest and I'm committed to be your friend. This is conversion to the God of Israel. Your God will be my God. Ruth looked at Naomi and thought, here's a woman who has nothing. She has no husband, she has no son, she has no wealth, but she has a God. And she's pretty excited about her God, enough to get up from Moab and go all the way to Bethlehem. And there's a change in her life, and I want that. I want that God to be my God. It's been well said that if your religion hasn't changed you, then it's time to change your religion. And I think Ruth felt that very strongly. Your God will be my God. Fifthly and finally, it was a complete commitment. Notice how she wraps it up. Where you die, I will die. I would say that's a complete commitment. In other words, I'm in this for life. I have no bridges that would tie me back to Moab. When I leave, I'm leaving for good. I'll burn the bridges behind me and I follow you for life. And I follow your God for life. And I make your people my people for life. Wherever you kick the bucket, I'm going to kick it right next to you. That is a complete commitment. When Julius Caesar approached the shores of the British Isles, he went across the English Channel, landed at the White Cliffs of Dover. They climbed the cliffs, and Caesar made a decisive action 
a, a very, very uh, radical action. He asked his soldiers to look back down the cliffs at the ships that brought them in on the sea, and they looked back and saw the ships were engulfed in flames. Julius Caesar set them afire himself. He commanded people, when we're up the cliffs, burn the boats. Of course, the soldiers saw that their only hope for return, if they failed, was up in smoke. And their only hope was to march forward and to conquer. And they did exactly that. They got victory because they saw there's no hope for retreat. It was a complete commitment, not, well, uh, I'll follow you a little bit, but, you know, Naomi, if it's a little tough, you know, I'm going to go back home. The Christian life is such a commitment. I will follow you, God. I am your disciple. I am your son, period. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Which are you most like? Which widow? Naomi? Convinced after a period of time, wandering in the enemy's territory, I need to come back home. God will bless again. Are you like Orpo? says, well, I've weighed the choices and I think I'd rather stay here in my world of idolatry. Or would you be like Ruth, who's never really made a commitment, but you're seeing somebody else in your life make a commitment, and you would say, your God will be my God. That's the choice that she made. Which are you like? Maybe today you'll make a commitment to Jesus Christ. Like wedding invitations imprint this verse. Maybe you would say that commitment to your God. Maybe you'd say, I take you as my Lord, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Till death do us part, and even when death parts us, we're going to be together again for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the life of this woman named Ruth. The decision that she made impacted all of eternity. While great nations were rising and falling, a tearful conversation was taking place on a dirt road in Moab that was the most significant thing on earth. The days of small beginnings. Help us, Lord, to realize that our choices are magnanimous and important and not to be scoffed at. Lord, I pray that if we're in a position today like Naomi, that we would rejoice that we can come back to you and you would bless once again. Or if we're like Orpah, if we're tempted to go back to where it's easier and more comfortable a place where we might not be scoffed at by friends if we made such a radical commitment. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't go back, but rather be like Ruth, who would say, nothing's going to talk me out of following Jesus. I'm going to associate myself with Him, with His people, till death. Lord, give us persevering saints who will walk that pilgrim road to Bethlehem by faith. May that commitment begin now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.